0: I'm shutting that one off. Thank you, sir. <clears throat> in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. O Heavenly King, O comforter, the Spirit of truth, who art in all places and fillest all things, come and dwell in us, and cleanse us from every stain, and save our souls, O gracious Lord. Amen the words of my mouth the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you O Lord our rock and our Redeemer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit amen so we spent these last two weeks the first week after Pascha we looked at the harrowing of Hades as our Lord that sins, gives up his spirit goes into Hades and demolishes the gates releases the captives and tramples on our enemy binding him Rendering him weak and a much different state than he was beforehand Then last week we started looking at the post-resurrection Ministry of Christ we looked at the road to Emmaus and some other things that happened With our eye on this when we look at Christ's ministry of harrowing of Hades That ministry continues in every one of the souls of God's people from the time of their baptism through the rest of their lives coming into our darkness, revealing himself, and lifting us up out of it, so that we experience the great joys of what it is to be in the kingdom of God and filled with the king himself. And so today what we're going to do is we're gonna get out of that, looking at kind of the harrowing of Hades theme, and we're gonna take two weeks, these last two weeks, we are gonna be focusing on Christ's continuing post-resurrection ministry, looking at some various aspects of some of the things that he did (laughs) And some things that we can see. I tell you, there's some things, Even every year I look at this. And I taught on this, I think it was my second year here, so eight years ago. And relooking, it's uh, revisiting all of the ministry of Christ, you, like everything else in our faith. We continue to grow in an understanding and wonder of what Jesus was doing during that time. And so the first thing I am going to mention to you about his, his ministry after his resurrection it, it, is that it spanned the same duration as our Easter tide or Paschal tide, the season of Easter, which runs how long? Forty days. Mm-hmm. Forty days to Ascension. I got some are saying fifty. That's because fifty days to Pentecost. Okay. You want to arm wrestle over it right here? Let's go. Anybody? Anybody? Marriage counselor out there? <laughs> I'm going to need it after this week, I'm telling you right now. I'm going to need help. I'm pretty sure your wife's training, right? Yes. Go to, your, go to your room. So the ministry of Christ's post-resurrection ministry from until his ascension was 40 days. Always remember that number 40. That number 40... Every time we see it, as long as God has had a people, it's always known in the church and in our theology is a number of completion, okay? How many of you can think of some of the other 40-day events in the Old Testament and New Testament that went 40 days? Yes. Huh? The ark. The ark. Yeah, the flood, right? Yep. The, tempting, the temptation of Christ that our Lent is modeled after 40 days until their souls, readying their souls to follow him through the Jordan into paradise, 40 years. Again, all these ideas, completion. And we see the same thing, that our Lord is ministering for 40 days from his resurrection to his ascension. We know that, we spoke briefly about this, but I'll show you the scripture. We know that our Lord obviously showed himself to his disciples, to his mother, to you know all of those But we mentioned briefly, and it comes from this passage right here, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, St. Paul tells us multitudes really saw him. For example, have a look. For I delivered to you first all that which I received, that that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to Scriptures and that he was seen by Peter, then by the twelve, after that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained too present, but some had fallen asleep. And after that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. Never forget that. After the ascension. And he was seen by Stephen. Yeah, oh, there's been, there's many more, sure. Yeah, yep, exactly. You know, Paul would experience the risen Christ on the road when he was going to arrest Christians. Um, but understand this, you know, understand that when he's writing to the church of Corinth, this is after a full three-year period, and he wouldn't even get to Corinth for a little while after, pen, after his conversion, years after his conversion. Then he'd be in Corinth for three years. Then after he was in Corinth for three years, we get these letters that's writing back to the church after he left to correct and to exhort, right? And so he's looking back and, and telling us all of this, that that many people saw him. So let's revisit just for a moment the scene at the time, the moment of the resurrection. Okay, Christ, having been crucified, was placed in a tomb purchased by Joseph of Arimathea. The Jewish leaders... ...had warned Pilate and the Romans. He had warned them that this Jesus had been telling everybody he was going to be raised from the dead, and all of his disciples keep talking about it. So they go and tell Pilate and ask him, seal it up, which they did, but also station men there in case they come to rob the body and proclaim that he's risen, because if they do that, Pilate, you've got a problem on your hands, you see. This is the mentality of them. And so this is what happens. So he, he, uh, Pilate, orders a, a number of his Roman soldiers to guard the tomb as it's sealed by the stone. And we pick up the scene right there. In St. Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 4. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, who we'll mention in a minute, came to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. Get the picture. I don't know if you ever made the connection. When Mary, when Mary and Magdalene and the other Mary arrive, nothing's happened yet. They're going to experience it. you getting that? I don't think we ever make that connection. They came to see the tomb, and behold, as they came to see the tomb, a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and rolled back the stone from the door. They'll be witnessing this. You know, honestly, this is one of the things I've never made the connection of before. But it's right there. As they went to see the tomb, this happened, right? And the Lord, uh, sorry, rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow, speaking of the angel now, okay? And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. They lost consciousness because of the flash and the power. So just as an earthquake shook the world occurred when Christ descended into Hades, breaking the prison doors, it did it again with the, when the <coughs> angel descended upon the tomb. It shook the earth. Okay. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. You know, our teachers and students got a beautiful image of this not about two months ago with a lightning strike right across the street. How many of you have been fairly close to a lightning strike? And don't admit it if you've been hit by lightning, because it'll make fun of you forever. <laughs> right. It, the flash of lightning, even from a distance, but when close up, it is near blinding. It is stunning. What I mean by that is you're, it, when it hits, you're stunned. Okay? Not just stunning, beautiful, and, and, and awesome, but, but you're stunned. And these Roman guards felt the full impact of that angel descending, and they became <laughs> ad, They weren't dead; they were as dead men. Okay. So we see the stone rolled away by the angel. But you know, many people make the error in their thinking that what a nice thing the angel did—rolled. He opened the door for Jesus. <laughs> right? The angel, the angel, the divine doorman. Right? And I make fun, but this is—I mean—and it's—it's—it's. It's, if you think that, but the reality is it's not true. The Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrected body had no need of doors. And he proves that when he appears in that room we talked about in the sermon a couple of weeks ago, when the, the, the disciples are locked in in fear of what everybody might do to them and trying to pull their lives back together. He doesn't use a door, he just appears. So if, it, if he didn't roll away the stone for Jesus to come out, what was the purpose of the rolling away of the stone? The fathers talk about this. St. John Chrysostom, after the resurrection of the angel appeared, but for what purpose did he come? To roll back the stone. Why? To attest to the women of the resurrection so that they might believe. Now, I love this one. St. Peter Chrysologus, because he relates the rolling away of the stone and the revelation of Jesus being resurrected to our own souls. St. Peter Chrysologus says, An angel descended and rolled back the stone. He did not roll back the stone to provide a way of escape for the Lord, but to show the world that the Lord had already risen. He rolled back the stone to help his fellow servants believe, not to help the Lord rise from the dead. He rolled back the stone for the sake of faith because it had been rolled over the tomb for the sake of unbelief. Think about that. I love that connection. The stone was placed there like that because people doubted and didn't want to be disproved. He rolled back the stone so that he who took death captive might hold the title of life. Pray, brothers, that the angel would descend now and roll away all the hardness of our hearts. And open up our closed senses and declare to our minds that Christ has risen. For just as the heart in which Christ lives and reigns is heaven, so also the heart in which Christ remains dead and buried is a grave. May it be believed that just as he died, so was he transformed. Christ, the man suffered, died and was buried as God He lives and reigns and is and will be forever. Roll back the stone to the hardness of our hearts so that we may see and experience the risen Christ. I love that prayer. That one's going to stick with me. Interesting note to consider here. When we now look at the testimony of who is it that Christ revealed himself to first in the resurrection, One of the things we noticed is he reveals himself to women and then he reveals himself to men. And I started thinking about that this week and and playing around just with that, just wondering about it and read a few of the fathers and they, they made an interesting connection that really helped me and it makes total sense. Because perhaps in Christ revealing himself, which means by the revelation and the experience that he would give to those who would see him, he restores the faith and and grows the faith of women first than men. And the fathers say it goes back to his perfect order of redeeming all things. In the garden, we see his perfection of redeeming things absolutely in perfect order. For example, how many times... St. Peter deny Christ? Three. How many times does Jesus ask Peter, do you love me, in order to redeem him? Perfectly three times. And we're seeing a perfect pattern of redemption, female to male. Who fell in the garden to the deceit first? Eve. Then Adam fell. It's our Lord Jesus Christ, even in revealing himself as the resurrected Christ. He grows the faith. How about this? I'm sorry, there's there's another one to consider. The angel comes to the blessed virgin Mary, Gabriel, first with with the annunciation, and she, by her obedience and her humility and her love for God, overcomes the fall of Eve. She becomes the second Eve. Then... Christ becomes incarnate becoming the second Adam and redeeming both sexes but the order was there you see that and so after the resurrection could it be some of the fathers mention it could it be that the Lord is restoring perfectly the order of the fall with the experience of his resurrection okay just an interesting little tidbit there um, so speaking of the women I want to talk about the myrrhbearers for just a moment but I want to mention to you that we're not going to go into a lot of their various experiences only because we're really, and we have a lot to focus on, we're really going to focus on the experience of St. Mary Magdalene. Okay, But I do want to mention the myrrh-bearing women for just a moment. First of <coughs> all, let's understand what a myrrh-bearing woman in that Day was, and it does not just related to the death and burial of Christ. There were myrrh-bearing women for every funeral, okay? When someone died, ointment mixed with myrrh and other spices, in fact, the very gifts that Jesus would be given by the wise men, but ointment and other spices would be used to anoint the body, and the ointment limited, number one, it limited the smell of the decaying flesh, but also... It also slowed down the rate of decay to allow people a few days to come and extend their love before the sealing of the tomb. Follow me. So that's the purpose of the myrrh-bearing women. Now, some are going to try. Some try to argue that scripture is fallible. Because if you look in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you get a totally different story of these murdering women, who it was, who it wasn't, that came to the tomb and experienced Christ and when. And the the fathers are very, very clear on this. When you look at all of them, for example, in St. Matthew, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of our Lord, came to anoint his body. St. Mark adds a woman named Salome also came with Mary Magdalene, but not the other Mary. Uh, St. Luke says that the women came from Galilee with Jesus. The women who followed Jesus came to the tomb. And St. John focuses solely on the experience mainly of St. Mary Magdalene that she has in the tomb with Christ that we're going to look at today. The reality is no myrrh-bearing women or or women, plural. It's just a one-time event. In the course of those two to three days before the sealing of a tomb, they would come in waves and do it over and over again. You see, it wasn't just a one-time deal, okay? And so that's why when you look at the different Gospels, they're focusing on different events of the different women that come at different times fulfilling that deal. You see, that this is how the fathers speak to it, okay? Um, but who were the murdering women? Mary Magdalene. Then the other Mary that we saw mentioned in Matthew, the other Mary is Mary, the wife of Cleopas this same mary was with the disciples when jesus was being crucified there at the cross but also remember who cleopas is who's cleopas from last week yeah he was he was the one of the disciples along with saint luke that was on the road to emmaus when they have the road to emmaus experience this is his wife okay so she's one of them um Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. Salome, the mother of uh, Salome, is, is there. Joanna, mentioned in Luke, as the woman healed by Christ. Susanna, mentioned also in Luke, as a woman who provided necessities to Jesus and his disciples all throughout their ministry. You only see three here. There's actually an icon that has all of them. Hmm? Is that one of them? One, two, three, four, five. There's seven, yeah, that's it. Very good. So, and it shows all of the women that I just named. They, that was; those were the ones who were considered the Mirabring women and took place, took part in that ministry and had various experiences throughout that process. Like I said earlier, what we want to focus on today is Mary Magdalene. And I'm still even; I'm almost chomping at the bit to get to the end because it's like everything else leads to what's really being revealed to Mary Magdalene, but, but I'll hold it and we'll go through it because it, it, it's really something that blessed me. and I've, I'm still thinking about it even as I'm talking about it. In the Gospel of St. John, chapter 20, we have the testimony of St. Mary Magdalene. Let's look at the progression and then see some of the wondrous revelations that we've been given and that she was given by the experience of Christ. In verses 1 through 10 of St. John, chapter 20, while it's still dark, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb, the stone is rolled away, and she goes, from the gospel of John, she goes to tell Peter and John, claiming someone has taken his body. She hasn't experienced the resurrection yet, okay? Someone's taken his body from the tomb, and then Peter and John, they run. They want to believe, but they don't yet. They run, and they see the empty tomb, and they find that the grave clothes, what What do the grave clothes look like? They're neatly folded and put off to the side in a place where the body wasn't laying, is what we're told. What that shows us, obviously, is this. This is no grave robber. Grave robbers don't care about being nice and neat. They hit and they run. And if they're stealing a body, they take it. And they don't worry about undressing it and folding what was on it, right? <laughs> So this thing, something different was going on here, but they hadn't yet, they had not yet encountered the risen Christ, but they're hoping, and they're wondering what in the world to make of this. They return, and this is when we know that they, with the rest of the disciples from our sermon and the scriptures two weeks ago, that's when they go and lock themselves in a room with the rest of the disciples, if you follow the timeline. But as they leave the tomb, the passage tells us clearly that Mary Magdalene remains. She's not done yet. She doesn't leave. In fact, here's the account. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And when she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now the fathers speak beautifully, telling us what was in Mary's heart that caused her to stay. Why didn't she run with the disciples and go on not knowing what was going on? What compelled her to stay? Let's look at St. Gregory the Great first. Mary Magdalene, who had been a sinner in the city, loved the truth and so washed away her tears the stains of wickedness. Her sins had kept her cold, but afterward she burned with irresistible love. We must consider this woman's state of mind, whose great force of love inflamed her. When even the disciples departed from the sepulcher, she did not depart. She looked for him whom she had not found. But it's not enough for one who loves so deeply to have looked once, because the force of love intensifies the efforts of the search. She looked for him a first time and found nothing. She persevered in seeking, and that is why she found him. That is something for every soul in this room. Let it be written in you this truth that anyone who is inflamed with a love for Christ and a desire for him is in a relentless, consistent pursuit to experience him. That's the fire of the love of a disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ. It moves us to find him. It moves us in the darkest and, and most horrid times of our lives to not let go and keep coming do you see this this is the mark of a disciple one who loves christ and will not let go until she finds it you see if you're in one of those valleys where you're not feeling much spiritually of our lord jesus christ in your life keep looking in the tomb and you'll find him and he will reveal himself okay in just a moment we're going to see the reward that she's going to get for her persistent love for Christ but first we need to look exactly take note of what she saw She saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus laid here's what it's like thank you Thank you. (laughs) That imagery, two angels at the head and foot of the Word of God, where his body lay, is precisely the imagery of the Ark of the Covenant fulfilled in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant is located in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place of the Tabernacle or the Temple. And on the top of the Ark of the covenant, covenant were two angelic beings, the two cherubim. Always. And in between the angels, God told his people what this was. In between the angels was the mercy seat. The seat from which Christ, the Word of God, has always had always sat upon to judge and give his divine mercy to his people. Okay? This is what we're talking about, to cover their sins. And I want us to consider for just a moment at how everything even in the Ark of the Covenant that was contained and kept in there that God told them to have in the Ark of the Covenant points directly to our Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing we're going to notice on the right underneath the, the staff is, a, is the jar filled with manna. Jar, remember when they were going throughout the wilderness God would provide manna in the mornings and God told them keep it, place it in a jar and that's what went in the Ark of the Covenant. And Jesus proclaimed himself in St. John chapter 6 that I was the manna in the desert and I am the bread of life. And he who eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood, his life will be sustained eternally, will inherit eternal life. Now let's go even further to the continual experience of this in present day, fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. Where do we keep the bread of heaven? Where do we keep the consecrated host that is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ? It is in the tabernacle, which to us is the Holy of Holies, and in that tabernacle is the jar of manna, the ciborium. The same imagery Christ gave his church. Now in reality, the Lord Jesus Christ present with us, which is why that presence candle only goes out once a year. Because he is with us in the same way. And also, I don't know if you know, you may have noticed this. There's a veil on the tabernacle called the canopium. What is it in the church that is to be on that veil? The angelic beings. Next time you walk by, take a look, and the angelic beings are on the Ark of the Covenant right before our eyes containing Christ our God, right in our midst. And so that's one of the things there. The second was the tablets of the law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. And this will be very brief. We know this. We've talked about this. We hear it in the liturgy every time. Who fulfills the law? Not what. Who fulfills the law? Jesus Christ. And the law of God is the law of love. Love God, love your neighbor with all that you are. So that was also in the Ark of the Covenant, pointing to our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, the staff that budded, which was Aaron's staff, was placed into the Ark of the Covenant. And that staff budded with great purpose, and we see this in Numbers chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and get from them a rod from each father's house, all their leaders according to their father's houses, twelve rods, for the twelve tribes. Write each man's name on his rod, and you shall write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi, for there shall be one rod for the head of each father's house, then you shall place them in the tabernacle of meeting before the testimony where I meet with you. And it shall be that, at that the rod of the man whom I choose will blossom. Thus I will rid myself of the complaints of the children of Israel which they make against you. The reason for the rod budding, God chose the great high priest of that year for his people making the connection jesus christ is the final chosen great high priest of his people and we see this in the ark of the covenant imagery and now our lord grants mary magdalene her greatest desire that is the experience of himself even beyond what's in the tomb We're told the angel said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said, because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, when she'd said this, she turned around. By the way, she looked in the tomb. She saw the angels. Right as she turned around, she sees her Lord, but did not know that it was Jesus at first, kind of like the gentleman on the road to Emmaus. He hid himself for a moment until something, something she needed. In her struggle, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I'll take him away. And Jesus simply said her name, Mary. And in that moment, she knew him. When Jesus, on the road to Emmaus with the disciples, took bread, blessed it, and broke it, they knew him. This is the same wording being used. That when Jesus simply said the name of her, it was his sheep, she knew it was him. She knew it was him. There's a beautiful hymn in the Eastern Rite, a Kentuckian of the Resurrection. This was written back in the sixth century. It expresses this very thing. The words are, He who searches the hearts and grabs them by the reins, knowing that Mary would recognize his voice, like a shepherd called his crying lamb, saying, Mary. She at once recognized him and spoke. Surely my shepherd calls me, for I clearly know who it is who is calling me. It is he, and he said ahead of time, my Lord, he who offers resurrection to the fallen. There's something extremely beautiful for that. When I look at the Lord's voice simply saying the name, knowing his child in the midst of everything that she's dealing with, just by calling her by name reveals himself because in doing so it's the great understanding think of what she would have experienced how he knows me right where i am how he knows exactly what i needed right then you see it's a profound relational experience i want you to make note of this i don't know if you've made this connection yet this is the one that keeps going over and over in my mind and includes what he's constantly trying to do in, in me as his sheep. Then at the testimony regarding Mary's experience with the risen Jesus Christ, I don't know if you saw this, but Jesus, the resurrected Christ, and because of him, the tomb became a tabernacle. The tomb. Nothing about a tomb would seem to be a place of meeting with the God of life. A tomb, in human mind, was the place where the dead would lay. And our Lord Jesus Christ shows her the image of the ark with the two angels, draws her into that tomb, that that might be the very place of meeting that he would have with her. You see that? I'm still working on this, even in myself, of how the Lord does what he needs to do in this tomb that he's refashioning to be the place of meeting the tabernacle. Healing and redeeming and refashioning it as we talk about. So that this, this tomb here is imbued with life and becomes the ark, the place of meeting in the holy of holies with my God. Where I can hear him call my name and I can call out his when I need it. I say that about myself to testify. I know that's what the Lord wants to write in every one of our souls and our lives. That makes sense. It's something to really consider. You know we, we're on this theme throughout this this journey of God harrowing Hades and harrowing the Hades of our soul. This could be another aspect where it becomes the very place of meeting. Fathers talk about this all the time. If you want to find God, where do you look right here inside? That's where to search for the Lord your God and find him, right? Any questions or thoughts? Yeah. Do they, do they have the ark of the covenant like you know the Old Testament has the ark and the new It's, it's changed? Do they still have like the rod and the, none of that stuff? You know, <clears throat> there I I keep hearing but never seeing or having it revealed. There you know, look, there are numerous people that have claimed to have the ark, right, right, but then they never show it. So. Um, and in fact, there's even, uh, and I forgive me for not remembering where this is, the Coptics. Right. I can't remember one area claims <laughs> to have the Ark, but it's, to our knowledge, it's not around. Okay. Dis- the actual Ark. Did it disappear at the, at the exile of Babylon? Yeah, was it that? Egg? It was, I think, so. the Babylonian? It was not in the second. Well, the Roman second. Right. Yeah, I believe I believe that's correct. On one of those situations, that's where it was it was taken, and we know nothing the after New that. The New Testament said that there was one item in the ark, and about about it, they can say there was no no further information. Remember, it said yeah, yeah, yeah. this was in there, but we don't know what else. Yeah, <laughs> it was stolen at one point, and 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 it's not recovered. There's nowhere it ever shows that it's recovered. Yeah. Well, the reason that she's asking for. Where the Lord was taken was because she knew this was a rich man's tomb. And she thought that somebody thought that he didn't deserve to be in that tomb and they had moved him. Mm-hmm. So that's why she saw, thought the gardener had maybe moved him. Very good. Yeah. Any other thoughts or questions? Also tell them about the napkin. What that means. Talk. Tell them. Okay. Oh, when the, the bedclothes were on one side and the napkin was yeah, folded ah, up yeah, yeah. Go ahead. at the bottom. And in Jewish custom, when the master has uh, gone away from the table for something, that's it. he leaves the napkin laying there, just sprinkled up. But when he folds the napkin, it means that it's complete. Yeah, yeah, good. Awesome. Thank you for throwing that in. See, that's enough. There is so much. So much, yeah. And it's gorgeous. The African, is that where the image of his face No. Yeah, yeah, it's that's the head cloth, Right, right. Right. Yes. In the I don't know if you've seen the chosen, but mm-hmm. portray Christ meeting Mary, the first thing Yeah, sure, and they're, well, they're, and they're, I know they're grabbing from different things, but, but what they are trying to do in, in that series is they will throw in things beyond Scripture that have been talked about in the church in various ways, and that is one of them they get, they got that from, yeah. I've heard that they're, they're specifically <coughs> not going to show James and Jude the brothers of Christ precisely because of Catholic and Orthodox, view differing from Protestant. Oh, that's interesting. They, they it, I'll tell you who did an outstanding job of doing something like that is is uh, using historical but also not only historical theology but how that theology has been expressed in art and various things when Mel Gibson did the passion that you, you have to I mean I, somebody I think put together I haven't seen this but I want to where all the different historical, famous, artistic renditions of some of those events, like our Lord laying in the arms of his mother, is exactly like it looks on the screen. He took those to show us that he, he you know, and I, I really do, you know, really do kind of appreciate that. As long as we don't go off the rails, right? And, and we certainly can, but uh, yeah, there's there's so much that's there. Very good. Any other thoughts? So, we're going to wrap up. Next week will be our last week until the fall in our discipleship classes. We're going to wrap up by looking at our Lord Jesus Christ's ministry in Galilee. Okay? Which is getting just before his ascension, which is appropriate for us cuz we're getting just before his ascension. But we're going to look, excuse me, at his at his ministry to the disciples as they go back to their fishing and some other things and things that we can see and glean from all of that. Okay, all right, let's stand. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who who art in heaven, heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy Thy kingdom kingdom come.